all these players, I mean, they're extraordinary. They, they're one of the top 450 people in the world to do what they do at a seven and a half billion, right? You want to know the, the, the quickest way to lose your spot on an NHL roster? Go read 10,000 comments that say you're incompetent, you're an idiot, you're dumb, you can't play hockey, you have no hockey sense, you can't shoot, you can't score, you can't defend. Scott O'Neill is the former CEO of Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment which owns properties like the New Jersey Devils and the Philadelphia 76ers hockey team. Scott's book is called Beware Your Feet Are. I spent four years as president of Madison Square Garden Sports. I grew up in New York. So for me, Madison Square Garden was the world's most famous arena. It was the Mecca. It was the everything, the center of sports and entertainment in the world. And so to, to be hired there, coming out of the NBA league office, was, was quite a thrill. Um, behind the scenes at a sports organization, well, I can tell you this. It's a family, for one, which I think would surprise a lot of people. Um, you know, having walked the walk with several CEOs, I would meet them out on 7th Avenue and walk them through the gates. They were always surprised that I knew the custodians and the security guards and the, the people working the concessions. So I always thought it was funny because it is a family. It's I guess I, I, I would liken it to the circus. You know, you see those old movies of the old circus where everybody kind of knew each other and they were all friends. That's how it is at a, at a sports organization. You, you, you know each other's families, spouses, partners, kids, friends. Um, and, and so that's the first thing that, that behind the scenes is fascinating. In particular, at the world's most famous arena, there's a, a place called Sweet 200. And I think that would be most interesting to, to outsiders in that every star in the world, whether that's a, you know, a Fortune 100 CEO, like a Jamie Dimon type or uh, Bill Clinton or Barack Obama or Kim Kardashian, John McEnroe, The Edge. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock. I mean, it was essentially a who's who every night. And you almost couldn't believe who'd walk through the door. I'm, I'm not like a, a starstruck. That's not where I get my Jones. I know a lot of people do. It was a great tool for us to bring um, customers and clients and prospects and people we were we were doing business with into that room and they would just, their head would just be on a swivel as they went back and forth. Um, and then walking into the arena, there's the, the, the most amazing thing. We ended up, when I was there, we put a, a, over a billion dollars into the building um, to keep it, as, as we said, the world's most famous arena. And it was a big transformation project. But the one thing we kept was that ceiling because when you walk in, it's so unique. Um, it's actually, you know, you, you walk in and go, and go up to the building and, um, and the ceiling, it's like a spoked ceiling. And so that's the first thing you notice. The second thing you notice there is every event is a big event, whether it's the Westminster Dog Show, um, a tennis exhibition, a, a college basketball game, boxing, UFC, Knicks, rain. I mean, it, everything is just you're on the world stage and you walk in there and you can feel like the palpable electricity. So that, that, those are like the little short little memories to give you a sense of, of what it's like to work there and be there and walk into that building every night. And, uh, and it feels like something special happens every night there. It must've been a lot of fun. It was fun. It was hard. I mean, it was, I mean, fun because it's so big and grand. I, I hadn't, you know, that is a big, 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 big brand surrounded by big brands. Um, but you are, it's, it's a New York pace and that is not for the faint of heart, uh, but a fun, fun experience for sure. Scott, you, you wrote this book, be where your feet are. Tell us about the 
book. What is the what is the the message of the book? Why did you write the book? Be where your feet are is about being present, being good, doing good, and finding your authentic self. In a nutshell, um, this book helps you to to hopefully discover or rediscover your authentic self and put that into practice in the real world. Um, it walks through a series of examples, a lot of stories um, from me and a lot of stories from, from people in and around my world. And generally, there are a lot of failures. Um, this is a peek behind the curtain. This is not your Instagram, Facebook, you know, the Lego guy. Everything is awesome. You know, Lego guy, what I love. Um, I just think that's Instagram. That's Facebook. That's, you know, and when you peek behind that curtain, what you find about life, or at least what I found about life is it's a little messy. And so we, we talk a lot about some of the messiness of life and how you can be a lifelong learner, learner and, and leverage that to continue to get better, improve and learn and grow. Um, why I wrote the book um, is even, it's a longer story, not a very happy one, but my best friend of 20 years um, took his own life. And uh, his name is Will Carden. And he was this just amazing force of nature. I met him at Harvard Business School. Um, we instantly connected. I spent a ton of time with him, a vacation with him and his family. Uh, his kids called me um, Uncle Blue and I called, my kids called him Uncle Will. And so we were, we were sick as thieves. And uh, I got a call late one night that he had taken his own life and I spiraled. I spoke at his funeral, which was, was, uh, was a quite humbling experience. And I thought I had pulled it all together. And then, but I, I didn't, I, I, I understood, I found out what grief was for the first time and, and um, would find myself in a meeting, someone would say something and I would just burst into tears and walk out of the room. Um, I had trouble sleeping, trouble getting, anyway. So whatever that version of grief or depression is, I had it. And I started to write to heal uh, without the intention of writing a book. And it was more like a journal. Some of it was a lot of nonsense, but most of it was just stories, stories of struggle and what I learned. And a dear friend of mine, Randall Wright, came to visit and he said, uh, he, he said, what have you been doing? I said, I've been writing. I think my wife called him to come check on me and see if I could, he could jolt me out of my, uh, my trance. And, um, and he said, I think you should publish this book. And I said, uh, this is not, that's not what this is. This is about, and he said, no, no, no. You know, he said, what are you about? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, why do you think you're on this earth? And I said, well, I hope I'm on this earth to help develop leaders. And he said, we need more vulnerability from leaders. And he said, this is a vulnerable look at the world. And people are going to see you and they're going to say, oh, you have this great job. Oh, everything must be perfect. You have these three daughters and this wife. You've been married for 25 years. Oh, everything's easy. And, and you're going to tell them that it's not. And it's still going to be okay. And uh, so at that point, I went on the journey. And, um, and it was quite an experience, for sure. Why didn't you write the Instagram book that we see all the time? I don't have that gear, Michael. I, I, that's not, that's not how I see the world. I, um, I, I think there's, look, I, 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 I never want to say that I, I love the struggle, um, but I appreciate it. Um, I don't think that you can learn anything from those books or those memoirs or those, you know, everything is perfect. And by the way, it's just not real life. Um, that Brady Bunch thing does not exist. And it doesn't mean that life isn't fulfilling. And it doesn't mean that I don't love my wife and have a great connection and that I don't appreciate my kids and, and they're everything in my life. And it doesn't mean that my work isn't fulfilling and, and it gives me problems. All those things are good. Like I, I feel really fortunate. It just means that the steps 
the steps are hard and, and sometimes you trip and fall. And I, I think the more, the more leaders, the more um, managers, the more coaches, the more mentors, uh, the more teachers um, can be a little vulnerable and, and share some of their fallings as opposed to successes. I think that helps us as a, as a world, it helps the world get better faster. So is the core message vulnerability or is it something else? I think it's about finding your authentic self. And, um, and, and part of finding your authentic self is oftentimes vulnerability is a tool to find out who you are and what you're about. Um, but I, I think when you're, when you're young and you're, you're kind of walking through the world, you know, you, you ask yourself, like, how, what, what makes up me? What makes up you? And, and to some extent, it's, it's the experiences we go through. To some extent, it's the, the people we surround ourselves with. And to some extent, it's who we aspire to be. Um, and, and a lot of those experiences are trips and falls. And so how you react to them, how you learn from them, how you have that, that kind of innate ability to, to compartmentalize failures as opportunity to grow and learn is something that I think catapults people up, up a phase or stage in maturity and level. This maybe is an obvious statement, but writing a book about vulnerability and being your authentic self is not the standard stuff that CEOs of major organizations write about. I was reading Bob Iger's book. I happened to meet him down at the Orlando box. So when, they, when the COVID hit, the NBA moved all their games down to Orlando. <clears throat> and, um, and I happened to be, I mean, there was nobody at the, I mean, not nobody. I went to a game by myself. I was literally the only fan of the game one time. And then other times there were, you know, the commissioner, of course, Adam Silver would be there and some of the, the network partners and Bob Iger happened to be at a game. It was, there were five, three or four fans. And one of them was Bob Iger and one of them was me. So I had just read his book and I, I went up to him and I said, um, hey, I just want to introduce myself. And I just want to say thank you. And he said, for what? I said, I just read your book. I think it's called Ride of a Lifetime. And in it, he talks about um, being really anxious about whether he was going to be named CEO or not and having a nervous breakdown. And he actually talks about this book. And I was like, thank you. Because life is hard and it's messy and it's tough. And, um, and so, no, not, not all books are like that. A lot of them are, are pat on the books. And I, look, it's hard to write a book. And it's hard to get published and it's hard to get anybody to read it. And so, I, so kudos to anybody who has the courage to do it. Um, but, I, but, I, but I would, you know, put the, the, the I guess, the, the, the hook in the line or the, the line in the water and just say, if you are writing a book, um, just, just consider, consider the readers, consider how we might help each other grow. And, and I think when you do that and you, you dig deeper, I think you might, um, you might find that if you're a little vulnerable, life gets better. So is your book about making money? No, it's not. I remember when I was, uh, I was in high school, I, uh, I grew up in a fascinating family. Um, my two PhDs, my mom and dad were both PhDs, and um, one, was a, one had a PhD in child development, the other one in psychology. So it was a bit of a laboratory growing up. And, um, and I was in high school, and um, I was taking my senior year, I was taking classes. It was in Poughkeepsie, New York, and I was taking my classes at the local college, Marist College. And uh, I had to write a paper on success, to find success. Now, I'm 18 years old. And if you think I'm confident now, you should have seen me at 18. And um, it was to find That was the only assignment, to find success. And I, I wrote my, my, uh, my paper. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't do very well in the paper. It was B-minus. 
And I went home and my dad said, and he, my parents hadn't looked at my grades since I was in seventh grade. Like they, I, I don't even know how, if they ever looked at any of our grades of, of, of me and my four siblings. And he said, I'd like to take a look at it. I said, okay. I was, I was talking about it at dinner and, um, and he read it. He said, this is what you think, huh? I said, yeah, this is what I think. He's like, hmm. And that was it. And then he turned and walked away. And so the paper effectively uh, defines success in the, in the fastest way I think about life now and success. So for me, success is certainly um, career, what I'm doing in my career, family, um, as a husband, as a dad, emotionally, physically, spiritually, uh, physically. And so I think about the different facets of life. And I, I don't advocate for other people to define success that way. I, I advocate for people to, to make sure that when they're defining success, that they consider um, some different um, outlets other than how much money they made this year or last year or next year. Um, but, but for me, uh, it's, you know, money has never been a real driver of anything I've done or a motivator. You were CEO of this large organization in a very, you know, in the, in the sports business and you were a deal maker. You recently stepped down, but the lessons that you're describing now, uh, was your life, would you characterize your life as a CEO as embodying those lessons at that time? Or is this something new? Yes. No, I think um, I've evolved as a human being and I've evolved as a leader and I've certainly traveled down uh, into different phases of, of life as a, as a person. But, but I will tell you the, the, the one constant has been I've always loved people. I've always had a, uh, a knack for building teams and growing teams and I'm really attracted um, to talent and debate. And so, so those are, have been my constants. You know, I've, I've, I've had the reputation of, of developing some incredible talent. I, I might argue that I, I, people that have worked with me are, are gone and have, are doing some incredible things now. I was just happy to get some time with really extraordinary talent. So, um, so the question, I think the question you're asking is, is like, so is this all crap or does it actually put into practice? Now, I mean, in your, in your own way, which I think is appreciate. I appreciate the question. And I would say that, that the stories, a lot of stories from the book are from work, you know, and, and some of them are, are stories where there are wins. Um, a lot of them are stories where, you know, I learned from people at work. Um, and so the other question is, are you perfect at this? No, 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 no. This is, I mean, these principles in this book, like API and WM, assume positive intent and be a purple water buffalo and, fail forward. Um, you know, they're all things when I am living them and, um, that's my best self. Um, but am I, am I perfect at that? No, I'm not. Am I growing and learning every day? Yes. Do I trip and fall on occasion? Some might argue more than on occasion, but, um, but I think that I I hope that everyone, all your listeners, sophisticated audience, I hope that you're learning something every day or you probably wouldn't be listening to this, this podcast. So what's the relationship then between the lessons you describe in the book, and maybe you can share some of those, some of those lessons. What's the relationship between those lessons and business life? Because it seems like they're quite separate and distinct. Let's take my favorite lesson in the book is WMI, what's most important. My, my executive coach, Brendan Bouchard, 
tells me that he's interviewed 10,000 executives and they have, the, the research comes back that high performers spend 65% of their time or more on the three things that matter most. So I would say, yes, no, I, I, when I did my own um, audit and I, if there's one thing you listen to this podcast and take away, write down the three things that matter most at home, the three things that matter most in your relationships and the three things that matter most at work, and then go audit your calendar and map what you do against what matters most. And if you're anything like I was when I first did it, it's, it's a bit horrifying. I was at somewhere around 23% of my time. And, and, that, and I'm the CEO. I, can, I have full control of my time. And, and so for me, the question is, is like, like to answer your question directly, is that applicable at work? Yes. Is it applicable at home? Yes, it is. Is it applicable in your relationships? Yes, it is. How many times have you gone out to, gone out to dinner with a friend that brings you negative energy and you come back and you don't feel better about yourself? Is that a great use of your time? No, it's not. Or what's most important with the relationships that matter most? And how are we spending our time? How are we intentionally spending our time? Does that matter at work? Yes, it does. 100%. Um, so, I, so I think it's, it's very applicable. Um, assume positive intent is another one of my favorites. Um, or API. And look, you can walk in my house and there's APIs written on every blackboard. And by the way, I have three daughters. There are blackboards everywhere. <laughs> in our kitchen, in our living room, um, in their schoolroom, in their bedrooms. Um, and then we have it in some slate. It's the last thing you see um, when you walk out the door. And assume positive intent. What a gift to have at work. Like, if you're not assuming positive intent, just picture someone with like baggage stacked up on their shoulders. <laughs> and that baggage might be a conversation we had yesterday, some bad thoughts I had about a person, some bias I may have. Instead, assume positive intent. You walk into my office, literally, people will walk into my office and they would say, Scott, I need you palms up and API because we had a common language. And what the, all that meant was something went really wrong and I need your help and I do not need your emotion and I do not need your reaction. I need your counsel and I need your help solving this problem. So it's like, okay. So, so I, yes, I, I am um, failing forward to another one. Like we, 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 had, we built a reputation. We were named um, the most, one of the most innovative companies in the world and um, at HBSD and if you're not okay failing, you will not innovate, you will not do anything new, and you will not pull the trigger. You just won't, you won't learn, you won't grow. Now, is that easy? No, it's not. Um, but as a leader, um, everyone in that organization, if you want to be innovative, um, if you want to break ground, if you want to do something new, if you want to do something, what I would say is interesting to me, then everybody needs to know, it's like, I'm gonna take some chances and they're not all gonna work. And that has to be okay. It doesn't mean you don't do a, a post-mortem. It doesn't mean you don't break it down. It doesn't mean you don't learn from that. But man, can you imagine an environment where you couldn't fail forward? That it was like, you fail, you lose your job. You'll, you'll never innovate. You'll just take the safe course. You'll make the safe step every single time. You know, be a purple water buffalo. I'll, I'll keep rolling through them until you, you beg me to stop. But <laughs> man, I've worked for a, with a lot of teams. You know, and I've worked in this business now since 1992. That's a long time. And I've worked for some extraordinary teams. And I've worked for some teams that aren't so extraordinary. Um, the ones that love each other. I always say you have to love each other. You don't have to like each other. But those that love each other, those that root for each other, those that are there for each other, the purple water buffaloes, the teammates. Man, if you, I've been on that team, those teams, every day and twice on Sunday. The teams where it's every man, woman, and child for themselves. Not so much. So I, I think the principles apply to extraordinary leadership and management and teams. Yes. 
So Scott, these lessons that you've been describing, how does that map onto the management of a sports team with these incredibly talented and skilled players? I'll give you one quick anecdote. Um, the title of the book, Be Where Your Feet Are, is about being present, wholly present. Um, and as I like to say in my quick vernacular, um, phone down, head up. So if you were to walk into our conference room, for example, you would find a phone basket. And while that seems like that might be met for children, as it is in my house, because we have a phone basket here too, I will tell you that my millennials and my Gen Zers will look me straight in the eye and say, how am I going to take notes? And I say, grab a pen. You can do it. You can do this. We can do hard things together. Because I think what's missing, um, two things. One thing I think what's missing about life is, you know, you got to get your head up. It's like you walk in the hallway and everybody has their head down looking at their phone. You walk into a conference room before a meeting starts. What is everybody doing? Aimlessly scrolling through Twitter or, or Facebook <coughs> or Snapchat or they're sending a text they don't need to send. And all I want to do is look to the left and look to the right and say, hey, how was your weekend? Hey, how's that new project you're working on? Is there anything I can help you with? Same thing on the court. Remember, these, these players, um, they are gladiators. And, and they're big and strong and fast and tough and amazing. And, but they're, they're young. I, 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 I dare I say children, but definitely young men. And, um, and young men, um, just like my daughters in my house, sometimes can be fragile and and I wonder if the fans knew the impact that they had by the negative stuff they write and tweet. I think they'd do a lot less of it. And, um, and, and if I were, had a, a slew of players in my, in my house right now, I'd tell them all, just shut it down. Shut down Reddit, shut down Twitter. Those are the nastiest ones. And just be on platforms where you get positive energy and love. Because you want to know the, the, the quickest way to losing your jumper, go, go read 10,000 people that tell you you can't shoot. You want to know the, the, the quickest way to lose your spot on an NHL roster? Go read 10,000 comments that say you're incompetent, you're an idiot, you're dumb, you can't play hockey, you have no hockey sense, you can't shoot, you can't score, you can't defend. And I, I think, you know, it's not too dissimilar from, you know, from my 14-year-old daughter who may see her friends post something about, you know, the three of them at a pool party and she's the only one not there. And what that does to her or, or me, I've, I've been, um, been in the mix of some pretty nasty uh, tweets. And I, I, I was surprised at how hard it hit me. Now you take that and put that times it by 10,000 and put it on a 21 year old kid. What are we doing? And so, so yes, um, I think there are principles where be where your feet are can help players uh, for sure. I think that for many of us, fans, the players are so uh, remote. You know, we see them through our TV screens. They're not real. And we wouldn't. And I think many people would be surprised to hear the impact that so negative social media, for example, and attacks have on players because they do come across as supermen and superwomen, superhuman. Listen, you're an extremely successful guy. You have an incredible history, incredible background. Can you imagine after each of these episodes, 
if you got 500 notes that said you're incompetent, you're an idiot, you're stupid, you're not that. Can you imagine? Like, you'd probably stop doing this work. And instead, like, we're listening to the vocal minority because that's not the majority. I mean, you'd have to literally be, be um, un, you know, unaware, not very bright, and have way too much time in your hand to send a comment about the work you're doing. But now, again, and you're confident and successful and mature. Now, what about your 21-year-old self? So, like, I, I, I agree. I think fans, don't, they don't understand the impact or influence that the comments can have. Um, <clears throat> that's just like a boo in the crowd. I think it's crazy to boo your own team. I really do. I think it's, like, irresponsible to boo your own team. Like, wh- why would you be sending negative energy out into the world about the team that you love? about the team that you want to win, about the team that you respect, about the team that your colors you wear. You want to lift them up. You want to build them up. You want to create confidence. You want to create an environment where people know that they are loved and respected. Let the coach pull them out of the game and management. But for you, that groundswell of love and support, that's what wins, in my opinion. We, the fans, feel that those players work for us because we've spent all this money and all this time coming to a game. And if the player misses the shot, well, he's not doing his job and he's a bum. And that seems to be the common sentiment. And can you imagine like someone that worked for me, um, general manager building, Donnie Daniels, um, something was wrong in the building. And I'm like, boo, Donna, boo, you're the worst. You are awful. You should lose your job. Can you imagine? So she actually did work for me and she's extraordinary job. Like all these players, I mean, they're extraordinary. They, they're one of the top 450 people in the world that do what they do at a seven and a half billion. Right. Um, so I, I hear you. I, I, I agree. They do work for you. You know, you, the fans, but what do you want as a fan? Do you want better performance? Do you want harder working? Do you want wins? And what's your best avenue to get there? I'm not sure that the current pace of harassing, heckling, and booing your own team works. The other team, sure, go have at it. Go, go get them. Go get them. But I, I just think, you know, and, and I'm not very Machiavellian in most of my thoughts, but if you're purely Machiavellian, the worst thing you can do is get on social media and tell someone how terrible they are. The second worst thing is to actually boo them in personal life. Scott, coming back to your book, can you – Give us some examples or tell us how the lessons from your book map onto the business world. I'm kind of a classic manager, leader, developer of people, culture builder. Um, but do I love deals? Yes. Do I love to, I mean, we grew this company over $2 billion in six years. I mean, it, it grew um, some organically and, and quite a bit through acquisitions. So so yes, I, I definitely have a reputation of, of doing deals and growing deals, but, but my true love is building teams and developing talent. And so, I mean, you pick a chapter, I'll, I'll tell you how it applies to building teams and growing talent. And, and I think that's the path to building value in an organization. Um, and, and the notion, I'd love to dig into culture a little bit, the notion of culture to me is... You know, it's, it's what you tolerate and what you celebrate. So that's how I, I would define culture. Actually, I stole that from Hugh Weber, our president, HBO, my former colleague, HBSE. So it's what you celebrate and what you tolerate. 
And, um, and there's, you know, I have some, uh, some friends who, who believe that any talk of culture is soft. And I literally chuckle at them. I mean, when I left HBSC after eight years, there were 12 people that were there when I started 12 out of 2000. And so culture is what you tolerate, what you celebrate. And if you have a culture of accountability and a culture of hard work and a culture of continuous learning and a culture of excellence, there's nothing soft about that and how that creates a competitive advantage. I always point to that. I don't know if you've ever been to Disney, but uh, Disney world, but I always think about the jungle cruise line. I'm not sure that jungle cruise ride. And, um, you know, having my young girls love Disney. I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of like places where I have to wait online for two hours and the food's not great. Um, but nonetheless, there I would go and I'd inevitably have one on my shoulders and it'd be August and I'd be sweating. And I would look at this young woman in a outfit that I wouldn't wear. Um, and, um, and she was always smiling. And I thought self-selection, that's all I kept thinking about. And so when you're, when you're building a culture of, or, you know, of your team, when your culture is strong enough and you build up a reputation, people self-select in. So now you have people coming to us a couple of years into my tenure there saying, I want to be innovative. I want to take chances. I, I'm willing to work hard. Hey, that's me. That's me. I, yeah. I want to learn. Yes. Oh, I want to be developed. Yes. I'm not, I'm not, I am not fully developed. I want to learn and grow every day. Yes. I want to be challenged. Yes. I want to do extraordinary work. Now you're like self-selection. By the time you build that culture and you have that reputation, now the best people in the world that want to be that start reinforcing it. And that's when I think you get real, real lift. Let's inject a couple of questions from Twitter. I love getting the questions from the audience and then, and then we'll continue on the conversation about culture. And I think culture is part of all of this. But Wayne Anderson asks a really interesting question, and he says, how does the approach and mindset for managing bad feedback and performance change on the sports side versus the business side? The good news, bad news as a, as a coach or a general manager is, you know, you get to see it every day and so does everybody else. Um, so how do you manage that? Um, well, you know, if you're a coach, you manage it by playing time. As a GM, you manage it by how much you pay the person, who extends a contract, who gets traded, and who comes in, and who you draft, and what positions to replace someone who may not be doing as well. Um, it, it's it's like the purest form of of talent management there is. Uh, there is no complacency. I mean, there is no. You're fighting every day. Uh, I, w- I wish for Wayne. I wish he knew how hard these guys work. I mean, it is, uh, it's pretty humbling to see. And they're literally fighting for their careers because think about, think about this. Can you imagine if 95% of your lifetime earnings were made before you were 28? Can you even imagine that? Like it's kind of nuts. Or, or I did this presentation for, uh, for one of our teams a few years ago and I asked them what an assistant coach in college made. I can't remember. I think it was like 55 or 60 grand. And they were like, I don't know, a million dollars? I'm like, a million dollars? For assistant coach in college? Division one coach? No. No, that'd be too high. And so you're thinking like, these guys, our minimum salary in the NBA, I think it was a million dollars. And so now you're going from your, your, your next best spot 
you know, if you want to be an assistant where you played college ball, going down to 60 grand. Can you like, so how hard are you willing to fight to get there and stay there? How hard are you willing to work? How many shots you want to take? How many moves do you want to develop? How, how, much, how many hours do you want to be in a gym? Because there are 5,000 people that are probably just as athletic, just as talented, just as smart. Um, so so I, I think from that point, it's pretty simple. Um, from a business end, it's a little more complex. Um, you know, we, we take a pretty, or we did, take a, a, a very transparent approach to talent management, to performance reviews. Um, I go right between the eyes. It's kind of the only way I know in terms of developing, developing feedback, both positive and negative. Um, but uh, happy to talk more about that if it's helpful. We have another question from Twitter. And you were talking about uh, the psychological well-being of the athletes. And Elizabeth Shaw asks, how does this relate to folks that we've just seen at the Olympics, like Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka? This has been playing out, this drama, over, the, over this past week. First, I, I would like to talk about just what's happening in our own homes and what's happening in our own workplaces. And we have an epidemic happening right now. And I, I think it's been spurred on by, I think the pandemic made it worse because we were isolated um, and we had higher anxiety levels. Um, and my, what I talk to a lot of young people about is just a really simple formula. It's do something for your mind, something for your body, and something for your soul every day. Get the right amount of sleep, practice gratitude, and put your phone down, get your head up, be where your feet are, in other words. And, um, and those things, I, I, don't, I don't think they're, they're too dissimilar from anybody. Um, and this, this just gets you to the starting line, by the way. But something for your body. I think Simone and Naomi had this worked out pretty well. But for the rest of us, we've got to put 20 minutes. We've got to get the heart rate up for 20 minutes a day. For me, I'm Peloton junkie now since, since COVID started. 45 minutes every day, no matter what, I'm on the Peloton. I sweat um, until I can wring my shirt out. That might not be for everybody, but you might want to go for a walk every day. We've got to take care of our bodies. It helps clear your mind. Learning. I think we get in this mode, especially of work from home, is we just do. We just do. We learn and we grow and we read whatever's in our sphere because we don't know when to turn it on. We don't know when to turn it off. I, I will tell you, like, one of the best tools is to pick something to learn outside of your core business. For me, over the last year, it's been blockchain. I am completely fascinated by blockchain. I think blockchain is going to change the world as we know that in 5G. I'm not just not as interested in the 5G tech. But blockchain, I read, I'm doing at least an article, at least a talk a day so I can understand the tech and where it's headed. Now, I'm not advocating you go study blockchain. I'm saying, what is interesting to you? Go learn about it. One, one talk, one podcast, one article, do something a day. And then the soul, nobody wants to talk about kind of spirituality and, and your soul, and especially at work. And I, I'm not going to advocate for scripture, prayer, or going to church. I do that, but you don't have to do that. But you do need to find stillness in your life. And you need to get 10 minutes. And whether that 10 minutes is sitting out on your porch listening to birds in the morning, good for you. If that's yoga or you get that through a run or get that through just sitting and still meditating, good for you. But you got to find and, and milk milk that soul. Um, and then sleep. I've had more sleep experts um, come into our office than you can shake a stick at. And they all say the same thing. Because I grew up, sleeps for the week. That's what I heard from everybody. Money never sleeps. Sleeps for the week, you know. I should get up at 4 a.m., you know, all this crap, okay? It's not true. 
the reality is, is the body needs to heal. Your brain needs to heal and it heals when you're sleeping. So depending on your DNA, you need somewhere between six and a half and eight and a half hours a day. Um, and then gratitude part is I just encourage everybody, just pick up your phone and send a note to your mom. Just tell her you love her, you appreciate her, and one thing you learned from her. And then think about like, well, can you imagine if you just did a 30-day challenge? 60 seconds a day, you send a note of gratitude or appreciation to someone in your life, a teacher, a mentor, a coach, a mom, a dad, an uncle, an aunt, a grandmother, a grandfather, someone that works for you, someone you work for. Just 60 seconds a day of gratitude will get your mind set in a different place. And the last thing is, is put some rules on your devices. Okay. Ours in our house, which are a little draconian, just ask my daughters, are no phones in the, in the kitchen, no phones in the bedrooms ever. Okay. We, um, we have no notifications. So shut your notifications off. It's like an insulin shot. It's like we're looking at our phones 300 times a day. It's not healthy. You do not have to text someone back within five seconds of them texting. You don't. There's no rule. It's not written. But you know the person that texts you and puts the, the, the hand up, you know, like three times? I'm like, it's been five minutes. There is no rule on this. When you walk into dinner with your friends, leave your phone in the car. Can you do it? Can you take 30 minutes without a phone in your pocket? It's like we are so attached and you've got to take the discipline and put process and rules in place so you can be more present and be where your feet are. So that's like the six step process I'd be thinking about in terms of mental health and wellness. In terms of Simone Violet, um, Simone, God bless her. Uh, Naomi, thank you very much. Kevin Love, thank you. All these incredible athletes who are struggling and they're going out and they're saying, hey, they're raising their hands, say, hey, I have a problem. You know what that's doing? That's being vulnerable. You know what that's doing for my 14-year-old daughter who struggles with that stuff too? It's giving her the nod to say, you know what? It's okay. Yeah, I have anxiety. I have social anxiety. It's okay. I need to get some help. I need to go see a therapist. I need to go talk to somebody. I need to raise my hand. And I, I, I applaud the athletes that use their platforms to go help change the world. And it's hard out there. I will tell you, it is hard. And it's getting harder for everybody. Do these rules fit back into this subject of culture that we were talking about earlier inside a business? And by the way, you are you are a tough you're a tough dad. But I will say uh, that <laughs> that that I do practice personally. I practice each of those items very seriously. Except Great. my, as my wife will say, I would definitely fall down on the last one. And I think I could relate to your daughters. It's like, well, you know, I just need to respond. It'll take a second. Right. The problem is when you are reacting right away, it's taking you out of probably what's most important. And so what we're doing is we're taking things that, that are, um, they're timely and they're impacting what we think is most important. So in other words, I, um, I think it's just about if, if you are prioritizing those texts over what you're doing, then just make sure you're intentionally prioritizing them. So if you're with your wife and you think answering a text is more important than listening to her story, then answer the text. But just intentionally do it and know what you're doing and know the message you're sending. Because what you're saying to her, my wife says, like, my wife is hardcore. She, Lisa, her name is, she will, if I pick my phone up, she's like, just like this, she pulls her hand, finger up, she's like, I'll wait. I'm like, no, 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 I'm just checking, it's a playoffs, not my, no, 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 I'll wait. Is that more, it's more important? Okay. What a, what a gift to get that kind of feedback. It doesn't feel good, by the way. 
but this notion of culture, how as a, as a, as a CEO of a rapidly growing and well-known company, how did you feed these lessons back into the company to the benefit of the business and to the people working there? At the end, the tail end, like I said, it was self-selection. So I had uh, my senior team were the zealots. So I could concentrate on things like, you know, leadership development meetings. I spent a lot of time on onboarding. That's where I think I want to spend time. You know, if, if you want to change the culture of an organization, you as the as a CEO or you as the leader or you as the manager need to put pay a lot of attention as to who's coming in and why and what their experiences is like in those first 60 days intentionally. Um, so I did, I put on quite a bit of leadership meetings. Um, I think communication now is incredible. I think millennials and Gen Zs, I love these two generations. I love, love, love them. They are very entitled, okay? And they want to be promoted tomorrow. And they want the corner office the day after that. But they're willing to work hard. They, you need to give them access. You need to be transparent. Um, they're very connected to their brand. They're very connected to your brand. Their contract is, is, hey, Mr. Big Shot CEO, do your values match mine? Do the values of this company match mine? If they don't, I'm just walking away. They don't even need jobs. They don't have cars. They don't have play, no houses. They, I never, I couldn't even imagine that. Like just saying like, yeah, I'm out. I'm checking out. It's like, it's pretty amazing the, the pressure and connectivity you have with this young people. But I will sign up for that social contract all day long. Let's have, let's create a company where there's purpose. You have to believe in something bigger than a mundane job you have. So as a CEO, what is that? What impact are you making? What difference are you making in the world? And you're going to say, someone would say, oh, that's a waste of time. That's not a good use of resources. I'm like, no, you've lost your minds. It is the only way, you should, only place you should put your resource because I need to attract talent and I need to keep them. I need to keep them engaged. I need to keep them focused. And their social contract is like, yes, what do you stand for, Mr. CEO? What do you care about? What is this company going to do? We're having social issues in this country. What are you doing about it personally? What's this company represent to me? Man, I will, I will, I would work with this group all day long. I, I love them. I love the challenge that we have um, to keep them focused and driven. Um, but it's, it's, man, talk about a, a pressure on the culture. That's the group. You mentioned the term purpose. And we hear a lot lately about purpose-driven companies, purpose-driven leadership, and how can business leaders put that into practice so that it does not become superficial or a caricature or a cliche, right. but actually have some real substance behind it? That's the challenge. Like You get sniffed out very quickly. Uh, by by the, the younger generations. Um, so I had to, I, I tell you how we, we did it at, at HBSC. Um, you know, first off, we started with a diversity hiring. I think that's, that's the place it starts. Um, when I came into the organization, we had one woman who was a VP or higher and one person of color who was director or higher. Can you imagine that? Um, and then I believe the number is 62% of our hires over the next eight years were non-white men. Okay. Um, so, so we got a lot more diverse, a lot quicker. Um, I always have more work to do, but, but um, at, when the day I left, 
we had uh, 18 women who were VPs, 13 of, of whom were SVPs or higher, including our COO, our chief human resources officer, our chief revenue officer, and, and two heads of marketing. So, so we've done great job in terms of gender diversity. That, that was a, quite a big swing. And then, in, uh, you know, we have, when I left, I believe it was uh, 34% of the organization were people of color. So you have a, a huge migration and swing. So in terms of, of diversity for, for first off, um, and we put some processes in place to make sure that happened. Um, again, I use the word draconian sometimes because I, I, I'm, I'm definitely a leader who defers. Um, I'm definitely a leader who empowers. I'm definitely a leader who, who loves people who can take the ball and run. However, when you're in a turnaround or change situation, you, that style um, is not effective, or I should say it's ineffective. And so early on in the, the, the few turnarounds that I've been in um, or high change situations, I have much been much more um, dictatorial, directional, like a field general, you know, that, that type of style. And so early on, I put the rule in place that half of the final candidates had to be diverse. And um, you want to change the world. You know, you want to change the face of the organization. You just change the rules of the game, and so and that's what we did. And so that that, that really pushed it. And then you get to a point where you know, it's the reality about hiring, which is really it's it's a it's a it's a it's, I guess it's intuitive, but you know, generally people hang around with people who look like them. Generally, and it's a gross generalization, but generally, um, and and generally when you're hiring, you look for somebody you know. And so if, if you're a white man, most of the people you might look to hire might look like you. And all I was trying to do was just, just tweak that a little bit and, and make it harder. And so, um, and then once you hit like a certain level um, and you have women in, in high places and you have people of color in high places, then, then, then their hiring becomes self-fulfilling as well. So, so I, I think that was a big swing in terms of diversity. So I think diversity is, is one. Um, especially in terms of when I talk, when you talk purpose driven was the question. Um, and I think at least this past summer, uh, there was, you know, this, this country was talking about race quite a bit, um, for good reason. And for us, uh, we, we had done the hard work. I had a bunch of my friends call and say, okay, should I hire a chief diversity officer? I was like, yo, you're the chief diversity officer. You can have somebody in that spot, but just so you know, like you're not hiring a person and it's going to kind of like get you kind of in the game if you will so so for from us we have we had we hired a great chief for ourselves by the way david gould who's an incredible force for good um so so that's one is is are you living the values i I don't mean to just talk about diversity but there's um you can't fake you can't fake this stuff like what do you stand for you come to work for hbsc you were giving you were dedicating 76 hours of service to the community now you can do that through work, but you do it on your own. Like I, I, I was not, I didn't care. If you want to go mentor or teach or coach or be a big brother, big sister, do whatever you want to do, go do it. And then we were shutting down the office once a month to go serve, to get those 76 hours in. Now people know like that's either fake or it's real. To me, it was real. We tracked, we tracked everybody's hours. We had a portal, you put in your own hours um, and we served. And so, I, you know, again, like what do you stand for? When there's an issue comes up, it's like, are you taking a position as an organization? That's really complicated. 
it's really, really complicated. So we sat down with a lot of constituents. We set up employee resource groups. So we had a, a, a good cross section of people weighing in and we decided like, okay, we're going to weigh in on these issues and we're not going to weigh in on these issues. Um, but silence can be deafening as you know. So, so purpose driven comes in my opinion, um, the leader leads. Okay. You have to lead. That's your job. Uh, but it's, it's organizationally like, what do we stand for? Why does it matter? And I don't know. I don't think you have a choice anymore. I, I think there, the world's different than 20 years ago. Like I think as a leader 20 years ago, you could just go in and say, we're doing this and we're doing that. And we're doing this. And people would listen and do whatever you want. And you can make all the calls. And I don't think that's how it works anymore. Almost under any circumstance other than hardcore change or hardcore mishap. Um, I, I think you, the, the world is moving too fast. There are too many people doing too many things. It's like, you got to hire really good people, empower them, set up checks and balances systems, you know, trust but verify and move on. I, I don't think that dictatorial style works. I, I don't think like the, hey, post something on the wall and mail it in. I just don't think it works anymore. Like I, I think people sniff it out. And, and I think you have to care about people. I think people, people, people. I think that's the, that's the key sustainable competitive advantage. Correct me if I'm wrong. It seems that the the key factor in purpose driven as uh, something meaningful versus the words is actually getting skin in the game and putting those words into action that have consequence consequences for the people. Yes, in a carrot way versus stick way, is that because like like we track who serves and how many hours they serve. And if you don't serve, you're likely to say, like, I don't know if this is an organization for me because I've been to four, four meetings in a row and they keep mentioning who's serving. And I don't want this is not what I want to do. I'm self-selecting out. And the people that are self-selecting in are saying, like, OK, this organization cares about the community. They understand service and they're engaging at a whole level. And by the way, we just painted a school and, and the president of Sixers was painting right next to me. Oh, and the, the chief operating officer, she was helping me clean up the the um, whatever homeless shelter. I'm like, okay, yeah. So, so you start to build that culture strong enough. People self-select in and self-select out. So, so yes and no. You mentioned blockchain earlier. Do you want to do you want to share your thoughts on blockchain? We have a very you know our audience for CXO Talk is a very technology centered audience. You know, I was just in in Mozambique, which is the third poorest country in the world. Um, access to banking was probably, I don't know, just by estimates, by driving around, maybe 5% of the people had access to real banking. Like blockchain is actually going to democratize banking and financial institutions in the long run. Um, you know, Bitcoin provides a, an inflationary proof currency. Um, we're, you know, the, the notion of walking into a bank and waiting three days to wire money is going to be a thing of the past. So, so, um, so do I think insurance will be very different? I do. Do I think banking will be very different? I do. Am I betting against <coughs> JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America? No, I'm not. Like they're, they're really smart people and they're, they have a lot of access and they have a lot of infrastructure. And, um, and I think there'll be major players, but, but we've seen, seen the rise of some incredible companies come up. Um, I'm a big, you know, I, I follow Ethereum very closely. Um, you know, they just had their London upgrade on August 4th. Um, 
which is going to transform. Anyway, I don't want to over, over, over talk out of my skill set, but essentially it's going to start to um, um, reduce the supply of Ethereum over time, which will help it grow in value. Um, Ethereum is doing real revenue, like real, real revenue. Um, it's, it's the biggest platform. And, uh, and I think that platform alone, if you're going to study one, I, I'd be spending a lot of time on Ethereum. There's great, great newsletters out there. Ryan Alice puts out a great newsletter that I read um, religiously. The Masseri Report, if you're looking for a report to get you kind of the, the um, ABCs of blockchain all the way um, down to what's happening in the industry. They put out a quarterly report that's spectacular. Um, but, but to ignore what's going to happen in the world is, is naive. So I, I take a look. It's also really interesting if you're interested in like the geopolitical impact. Um, you know, China just shut down all their all their miners about a month ago. Meaning, um, those who uh, the way I explain explain it in my in my simple language would be is that there are miners um, and they are solving for a I guess an agreement between two people, so to speak. Um, and that's taking up a lot of electricity and that's, that's causing a stir, like a big stir as to how much electricity is used uh, for these miners. So China just shut them down. So you really understand like the difference between, you know, geopolitical control and what's happening in the U.S. So what does that do to the value of miners in the U.S.? Well, it shoots them up. What does the pressure do um, to the U.S. government in terms of what's happening with electricity usage? Anyway, so I, I guess a long way of saying that, um, it's uh, it's an interesting space. Um, I read everything I get my hands on. If you have anything you think is interesting for me, post it to me on Twitter or LinkedIn. I'd love to love to take a look. And you probably know a lot more than I do. I'm happy to learn from anybody who knows what they're doing. Um, but but to ignore what's happening in a space is is not prudent. How did you become interested in blockchain and? what is the thing that really holds your attention about it? What holds my attention is the power of banks in the world and insurance companies in the world um, and how much influence they have and how it, they can be disintermediated. Like that's what's really interesting to me is just thinking about some of the most powerful people and companies in the world and, and, and theoretically in 10 years, that whole industry can look very different. And if that whole industry looks very different, our world is very different. Um, you know, a, a lot of like things that just happen very naturally for big business can look very different. You know, where are you going to get a couple hundred million dollars in debt? And how's that transaction actually going to happen? What's the approval process gonna look like? And how's it gonna be paid? And how's it gonna be verified? So I, I, I think um, if you start thinking about what the ramifications are, they're pretty steep. So, so that was my interest. Um, I just kept reading about, about that. And, and uh, there's some fascinating people in the space. It's also like so uh, nascent that you'll have a, a tweet by a well-known CEO and, and the market will move by 3% or 5% or 10%, which is insane. Um, you have like, you know, in, in many ways, what happened to GameStop and AMC is very similar to what's driving the the price of Bitcoin, Ethereum, and and uh, and the others in the space, and and that's scary, you know, in terms of uh, if you're an investor. So um, so so it, it's a nascent world. Um, 
And, uh, but my interest is driven by, by what's going to happen in the future. I think everybody should be interested in that. It is pretty extraordinary how a tweet by Elon Musk can change the, you know, drive the price of these crypto currencies um, in a meaningful way. So the big question everybody wants to know is, should, should we be investing in Bitcoin now? Bitcoin, the price now is, is about, I think it's like 43 or 44,000. It's probably going to, it'll be at a, I think it'd be at a hundred by fourth quarter. So yes, I'd be investing in Bitcoin. Um, Ethereum is the best, better bet if you're, if you're betting. Um, I am certainly not a legal nor um, registered investment person. So I would be doing your own research, but yeah, I'm, 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 I'm pretty heavy in both. Um, and like both, I, I'd also like just encourage any <clears throat> investors to to consider some some of the other platforms in that space. They're they're more early stage and, and much higher risk, uh, but there's incredible people and incredibly smart people and incredibly smart money chasing some amazing amazing companies. We have another question from Twitter, not about Bitcoin, but actually about your book. And this is from Elizabeth Shaw, who says, how does a company develop its ethos and institute the kind of social contract that you were describing earlier? Well, the social contract exists whether you like it or not. Like it's, it, it exists. Um, how do you develop an ethos? Well, um, I would say that if you're the CEO, it's a lot easier. If you are not and you're running a group or a department or a team, um, I would consider what I what I call a culture within a culture approach. And so <clears throat> the one thing that would drive me a little bit batty over time as I was coming up through the chain was all the noise that was happening outside. And so, so my notion was, okay, in my sphere of influence, can I create the greatest place to work in the world? Think about that as a, as a mentality. So, so everywhere I was, was like, okay, can this be the greatest place to work in the world? Um, th- by the way, the answer to that is always no, okay? Because there's always going to be somebody that, does it better, does it smarter, has more infrastructure in place, um, has better people, smarter people, more, you know, whatever. Um, but but what, what, a great, uh, what a great pursuit. What a great pursuit. And, um, and so I love to, to talk, think about that with like your most senior executives, like can we get as close to that line as we possibly can? And then you start, you know, obviously breaking down the, the organization and how it works. Um, it always... To me, I, you've heard me say it three times so far about people, people, people. It's like, do I have the right leaders in place? Do I have the right um, emphasis on personal development and professional development of those leaders? Um, do they have clear expectations? Do they know what we stand for? Are the values driven not only on the wall, but how we execute in meetings, how we interact with each other? Um, and, uh, and then just in terms of a big feedback loop, uh, which just can be as simple as, um, you know, your six month check-ins and reviews, but also like, what does it look like on a, an hourly, daily, weekly, monthly, base, quarterly basis uh, with your executives and with your team? So, I mean, it, it's a, that's a pretty complex question, but I would say leadership, leadership, leadership first. And having a systematic way of approaching it so that it's not just ad hoc and let's, you know, do a little today and maybe a little next week and not worry about it in between. Yes, you either jump into the pool or stay out of the pool, for sure. 
Scott, as we finish up, is there a core message or imprint that you would like to leave on the people watching today? I, you know, I mentioned I was in Mozambique. Where I was with my 17-year-old daughter and 19 other uh, teenagers helping to build a school. And I, uh, I don't have any discernible skill set in terms of I'm not handy. I don't really know what I was doing. Um, <clears throat> so one particular day I was assigned to cement mixing. And I was back in this corrugated metal area with shovels and some, some young teenagers from the U.S., and, um, you know, you just take the cement mix and add some dirt and add some water. And, um, and what struck me is as, as we were mixing, mixing the cement, by, by the way, this, this work is, is not for the faint of heart. I just kept thinking about water and the water we added. And if we didn't add enough water, it would have dried up and been use, useless. If we had too much water, it was too runny and, and, and uh, useless as well. But I, I wonder, I'd be inviting your group, your, your listeners to think about that as as a metaphor for life. Like, what is the water? Like, what is your, I know what my water is. My water is like making, taking intentional time and making memories with my wife and my daughters, my family. That, that's one of my waters. One is like learning for me. One is being challenged every day. One is my physical, emotional, spiritual well-being and making sure that I'm, I'm taking care of those, those things. Um, so, I would just invite you to th think about the water in your life and what is it? Um, how do you get the right amount? Not too much, not too little. How do you regulate it? How do you think about it? Um, and how do you make sure that you're managing it to a point where you could become the best version of your authentic self? Okay. Scott O'Neill, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I really appreciate it. Love my time with you. Absolutely loved it. Um, I'm, a, I'm a fan, as you know. I've told you um, off air before. Wish you the continued success in all that matters. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Scott O'Neill. He wrote this really good book, Be Where Your Feet Are. He is a major sports CEO, and I hope you've enjoyed this show. Before you go, subscribe to our newsletter. Hit the subscribe button and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Tell your friends and check out CXOTalk.com because we have great, great shows coming up. Thank you to Scott O'Neill and especially thank you to all of the people who asked such great questions and who watched today. Have a great day, everybody. We'll see you soon.